This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. You don't have to be a class five river guide or kayaker to take swift water rescue. You can be a class two boater. Because again, what it does more than anything is it helps you understand awareness and helps you understand the situations that can happen on the river. And yes, Swift Water Rescue trains you in how to deal with those situations, but it also helps you learn what those situations are so that your goal is to try and avoid ever getting into one of those situations. So it's great training for being proactive. My sales spiel would be, this is what you're going to do to learn the things that can happen on the river so you more respect the river and the consequences that can happen because of bad judgment. And what it takes when a situation like that happens, how much time, how many people. One of the things that you learn in Swift Water Rescue is how to be really efficient in setting things up, how to control the situation, but still you're dealing with time. Today's episode comes to you from decades of river experience synthesizing into on-water instruction. Swift Water Rescue courses provide the river runner with an awareness of river hydrology and hazards, awareness to avoid the hazards, and skills to self-rescue and rescue others. This is part of a three-episode cluster with an overall theme of how to run rivers. The specific focus of this episode is about Swift Water Rescue. The other two episodes focus on food packing for the river, and how to get kids on the river. All of the episodes of this cluster are available right now, and it does not matter in which order you listen to this cluster. The intention of this cluster on how to run rivers is twofold. First is to provide base level information for the new river boaters that have recently joined the amazing lifestyle of river running. And the second is to add skills and methods to the river life for those of you who have been running rivers for several years, if not decades. We have two experts today to explore Swift Water Rescue, Juliet Jacobson Kastorf and Scott Solly. Both are instructors of Swift Water Rescue courses. Juliet is based out of North Carolina and teaches classes with a focus on boat based rescue with a rescuer working from a kayak. Her company, Endless River Adventures, provides these rescue classes, commercial river trips, and kayak instructional courses in North Carolina, Costa Rica, and Ecuador. Scott Solly is based out of Moab, Utah, and teaches classes with Swift Water Safety Institute in the western United States, focused towards the private recreational river boater, the commercial river guide, and professional rescuers. In addition to teaching these Swift Water courses and running his river business of Soul Gear, Scott is an active member of the Grand County Search and Rescue Crew, which serves the area around Moab, Utah, a very busy location for search and rescue action. To begin this exploration of Swift Water Rescue, we start with Scott Solly briefly introducing himself and explaining the basic concept of Swift Water Rescue. My name is Scott Solly. A lot of people might see my name and mispronounce it as Soul, which is really where my business name Soul Gear originated. I run a business called Soul Gear, making and selling kind of general paddle sports equipment. I was a, a river guide for a while. That's kind of how I got into rivers when I was 19, was, was as a river guide here in Moab. Kind of moved around to a few different places doing that and found my way back to Moab. Some friends convinced me to come down and do a high water season in Cat in 2011 and 
And then I found myself back down here being a guide manager for a river company here in town. I've taught here in Moab for a long time. I think 2005 was the first year I, I held a class down here. There were some other people doing classes. You know, in the beginning, it was like, who can I can I even get eight eight people to sign up? And anymore, you know, we list a class and we end up with a waiting list after 16 people and end up opening some more classes just to help out the the people that really want to want to take them. And and that's been really fun to see. And and not only that, but who is taking them is is really changed a lot. Would you tell us about what Swiftwater Rescue is, like the, this bigger concept, and maybe even what you know about where it comes from. Swiftwater is any amount of current velocity or depth where you are unable to control your own movements. So it could be a really shallow, fast moving, or, or it could be deeper as well. And then obviously rescue is saving people or gear, things like that within that environment. The origins go back to the 70s, really mainly a, a fire service thing. There were a number of accidents in the workplace of these fire service professionals found themselves in like these flood canals and drainage ditches where there was fast moving current and just lacked the proper training to perform those, those rescues. And as a result, some people had died and really it got the industry going to say, hey, we, we need some training to handle this. And so there was a lot of learning through that in the, in the 70s and 80s. And you know that was a, a time we, we really got to see some of the, the first really good texts come out from people like Slim Ray and Les Bechtel and Charlie Walbridge. He got the River Rescue book or um, Whitewater Rescue. And as, as time went on, there's a lot of these these fire service trainings, and that they really coined the term, I think, swift water. But it, it started to kind of morph into the idea that, hey, a lot of recreational and guides alike can, can benefit from this kind of training. And it's definitely not what it started as, which it's still changing. We're still, we're building new equipment and, and looking at things differently. And I think lately it's really morphed into the idea of risk management and understanding. And I think Charlie Walbridge said it in one of his old movies, maybe they're rescues, but we would think of them more as assists. You're helping to get somebody's paddle. You're helping to get someone back into the boat. NRS designs and builds many custom products for river boating, straps, rafts and cataracts, paddle gear. The list goes on and on. In my personal river gear are many key tools from NRS to include my PFD, dry suit, and my helmet. Do you ever wonder where this gear comes from? The design? The idea? I sure do. Here in this episode, we will hear from both product managers at NRS who are responsible for soft goods and hard goods. My name is Santos. I am a product coordinator at NRS. I am mainly focused on soft goods. That is in terms of managing the soft good line and designing the soft good line. And I'm Mike Dolmage, and I'm the NRS Hard Goods Product Manager. The longest running product at NRS is the NRS Bills Bag. And that was first brought to the market in 1977 by Bill Parks. And then following that in 1978, the uh, one inch heavy duty NRS strap was released. 
NRS encourages you to go directly to your local and regional River Gear shop to find the NRS products you are looking for. The Yampa River begins in the mountains of northern Colorado and flows through Dinosaur National Monument and into the Green River. Here again is Lindsay Marlowe, Executive Director of Friends of the Yampa. Will you please tell us how Friends of the Yampa supports research river trips on the Yampa River in Dinosaur National Monument? For the past 25 years, Friends of the Yampa has helped provide volunteers and labor on research trips through Dinosaur. Within the last few years, that position that helped facilitate the volunteers and river trips was defunded. So Friends of the Yampa stepped in with donor funds and we helped fund that position so that these trips can be successful. There's about five to six research trips done every float season, and examples are dragonfly larva mercury study, leafy spurge mitigation, and invasive species mitigation. We are working to grow our membership base, and I invite each one of you to donate to Friends of the Yampa, become a member, help support our research trips, and volunteering through Dinosaur National Monument. So in a few weeks, I'm going to come take one of your classes. I took the Swiftwater Rescue to be that young guide some 20 years ago. Great. Foundational in everything I've done since then. And it's definitely time to re-up the skills. I'm curious if you can give us a summary of what a person will kind of cover and encounter and do in your classes, even how long they are. I can speak to what I think would be an industry standard. And I'd, I'd say that whether you take one with SSI or another reputable organization, I think you're going to find commonality, and at least in all the classes. Some of the commonalities are probably, you know, getting some information on the hydraulics and hydrology of a river and what makes river hazards so that you can recognize dangerous things or things that are less safe. I, I would say that most people are going to learn how to swim in the river. That's, I, I think, a, a huge skill to have if you're going to go out on rivers. And, and also with throw bagging, it's not as easy and intuitive as someone might think. And we give you a lot of practice. And we're there to coach and, and give pointers and let you know when you're doing something that's maybe not such a good thing. Something simple as how to wade in the river. Uh, your feet are on the bottom of the river. You are at risk of, of, of getting your foot stuck in the river. And so there are techniques that you can do as an individual or with other people to make that at least safer. And then we, I think most people would give you some ideas on how to deal with someone who is entrapped in the river. That's, that's a real scary thing. And, and there's probably no way that anyone could explain how to do it every time. So I think a lot of people will arm you with ideas. Uh, I would say most classes out there are going to show you some knots and how to maybe tie something to a tree or a rock or your raft and, and then maybe how to set up a, a haul system. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. You know, raft flips are, are, are a thing I think a lot of people want to learn about. If you've never flipped a raft, it, it can be intimidating. And I think once we do it a few times, people uh, have a much different comfort level with that, which is good. 
And do you mean like take a paddle raft and flip it with people on it so you feel that, or do you mean a, an oar rig with gear? Well, generally in class, we use paddle rafts. It's, it's our way of reducing risk of uh, injury to students, although we sometimes will take out a, a loaded raft with an expedition frame and cooler and boxes and the whole nine and flip that too. For that, it's more about learning how to reflip it. Um, and I, I think people, you know, hey, I'm going down the Grand Canyon and this could be a thing. And they, if they've never done it before, we show them some ways that they can do it, ways to think about it. So a, a class length, I think that you'll see common throughout the industry is, is two to three days. You can take longer classes. We will do that sometimes for special ops, search and rescue, military, specialized training classes and, and dive a lot deeper into the subject. But I, I'd say your typical person that just wants to get out and, and learn, learn some things is, is two to three days. Those are the core skills. And it's all gonna be different based on where you go, what river you're on, who's teaching it. I've always thought there's a lot to be said about retaking this class in different areas with different instructors Everyone's going to emphasize something a little bit different and have a little different take on it and take what you will from, from everyone. And, and you'll be more well-rounded. So a little earlier, you said that from you watching the Swiftwater Rescue kind of timeline that originally it was a lot of guides who would take it, the class, and it would add a set of skills, skills that, that were useful, pieces on the resume that caught someone's attention, help them get a job. And now you're seeing this, this big push of, non-guiding boaters, meaning like the private boating scene is just growing and growing. Do you think it's a good thing that these new to the game, new to the river scene, private boating individuals are interested in taking these classes? I think it's a great thing. Recreational river runners, I think it's great that they're, they're getting out and taking this class. I, in the last, oh, three, four years, have had a number of groups contact me that are like, hey, we're going down the Grand Canyon and we don't know a lot about river safety, if you will, and, and we want to take a class and they'll get everyone on that trip. Like a private trip. A private trip wow. to take a class. And what that really does for that group is, man, they're going to have a, a great way to communicate on the river. They're going to all have go-to plans in a sense or ideas. They're like, hey, do you remember this or that? And uh, one of our instructors, Dan, and I taught that class and uh, for this group, and I heard back from them afterwards, and they're like, oh, yeah, we, we flipped a raft, and you know what? It, it wasn't that big a deal, whereas coming into class, they're very apprehensive about that idea, and I think the class offers, uh, gives people a level of comfort in being out in these situations. It's definitely reducing their risk versus someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Someone comes in and takes a class. Hey, um, I bought a raft. I'm, I want to get my family into doing this. I've got a, a young son or daughter and I want to get some knowledge. And they're going to take that experience and possibly share it with their friends that they boat with. The more people we have out there, the more likelihood that something will happen. And if more people are taking these classes, and have some skill that they can pass on to their friends, the more people who have ideas to approach the situation, that reduces, I think, risk. 
So let's talk about your your river gear. I'm I'm curious to hear about your own PFD. What kind of PFD are you wearing? The, the last several years, I've been wearing a Kokatat Centurion PFD. It's a it's a rescue vest, a Type Five rescue vest. I do a lot of rescue instruction, so it's very appropriate that I have that sort of PFD. I just I like the fit of it. A lot of members of the SSI crew like the the astral green jacket. I think that's a great jacket as well. It's just not as comfortable for me and that's fine. I've always said that when someone says, well, I want the best PFD, it's like, it's the one that fits you well. I mean, and that's, so that's kind of my everyday, most of the time PFD, 18 pounds of flotation. And then when we have those big events and the river is, is running very big around here, like the water is up 35, 40,000, I bring out a, a bigger PFD. And unfortunately, they don't make them anymore. It's an MTI Headwaters, and I've also got an MTI Patriot, but MTI recently sold. I liked it because it was a, uh, it's 28 pounds of flotation, and I just, I want to float high in the water, you know, in the, in the big flows. Um, and because I might be floating for a long period of time. So I had an experience that, that actually is relevant for this. So I, I was down on a trip one time and I, and I had a brand new PFD, 16 pounds of, of flotation. I jumped in the water with like a pair of shorts and uh, sandals on and the PFD and I sank to my chin in the flat water. And I was aware of this and a lot of people looking at me were like, wow, look at you, just sank that PFD right to your chin. I immediately, not immediately, when I got off the water, took it back, returned it and picked up the... Uh, like that middle ground high float from NRS, it's 22 pounds and it's really worked well for me. And then I also have that big MTI, high, super high float that I've wore, I wore in a huge swim in cataract and it was just enough to keep me up above, you know, in the, in the turbulent flows. Can you talk about flotation and the pounds in flotation and the relationship to the, to the human body and the swimming? Yeah, so... Humans are, are kind of neutrally buoyant in a sense. You're going to float, but you're not going to float above the surface. You're going to float just, just beneath the surface. So at 10 pounds of flotation, we're able to get the human body to, to their head to be at the surface. At 15 and a half pounds of flotation, which is the minimum the Coast Guard says she needs to be in your, uh, your type 3 or your type 5 whitewater type PFD, at 15 and a half pounds, we're, we're able to get the nose and the mouth out of the water. And that's a good starting point. And, and you know, you're, you're a bigger guy and I've got some friends built the same way. And, and yeah, it's, it's nice to have a little extra flotation. It's just going to put your head a little bit more out of the water. And that's what that extra flotation really does is uh, it just allows you to, to be able to float higher in the water. And, in bigger white water, the, the, you know, the, the reason it's white in hydraulics is there's lots of air. The PFDs are not designed to float in air, they're designed to float in water. So when you're in a hydraulic, you're, you're not gonna be floating. You're probably gonna get flushed under. And, and it's after you've been flushed under that it's gonna bring you to the surface. And I don't really know of, of a better reason to have flotation than just to... <laughs> get to the surface and, and i've definitely had those deep dark swims and i i am confident that if i relax and and go with it that i'm it's going to bring me to the surface and sometimes i just wish it were faster 
So these PFDs have lots of cool little places to attach things on the outside. And then there's all, uh, lots of ways to attach other things besides on these tabs. And there's pockets. Tell me about what you're attaching to your PFD and what you're putting in your pockets. There's a, a, a few things that, that I'm carrying with me. I, one thing that I did mention earlier, it's like um, having a knife. I like a one-hand accessible river knife on the outside of my PFD. It's kind of tough because it seems like PFD manufacturers can't locate a lash tab that that I found is really great. So a lot of the instructors at SSI and and elsewhere are you know kind of fabbing up their own lash point attachment. If you're not modifying the PFD, then it's it's not a uh, it's not an issue. It's not like we're sewing stuff to the PFD. We're just you know attaching things uh, to it. I like the the shoulders of the the lapels of the PFD kind of up and out of the way because if it's like you know in the middle of your PFD and you know, like on your belly type area or really sticking out, it catches on stuff, right? Um, and that's kind of the argument people say, oh, you should always have it inside your pocket. And I do catch my river knife from time to time on the on the perimeter line if I'm crawling back in or on other things. And yeah, I've, I've lost some knives over the years, quite a few really, which is also why I carry one, a folding knife in a pocket. It's just my redundancy. I carry uh, a whistle. It's not on the zipper. Um, whistles on the zipper can unzip your PFD. In a hydraulic, it's, it's on a short tether that's, that's close to the top of my PFD that I can use and be hands-free. and give hand signs and a whistle command. I've got couple of aluminum locking carabiners and a couple of pressic loops in a pocket along with a short little spectra runner that I've kind of cut and done some overhand loops on the end is just a little piece of like utility webbing use that for all sorts of things and mainly in in hauling systems that I like to just have that stuff with me it's it's come in handy in the past I've got some chapstick I've got a frame key or an Allen wrench that's for the adjustable frame rails. Sometimes those come loose and you want to tighten one up. Flint and steel. Oh, you do? I, I do carry flint and steel in my PFD. That kind so of a little fire kit of sorts. Yeah. And, and that one really came about after a, an equipment rescue down in, in Cat one year. Um, solo boat trip and everyone got washed out of the boat when it pinned. And, and so they ended up spending the night on on one of the beaches with, with only what they were wearing when they got washed out of the boat. And uh, they didn't have a fire that night. It was a little chilly, I think. So that just made me think it's pretty small and it's come in handy to start a fire, or the stove or um, whatever, it's right there. And you said you have, you have locking carabiners inside your PFD. Do you have them on the outside of your PFD? Generally, no. I, I have, if I'm running a, a tether, <laughs> then I will, um, but it, it's locking as well. It's got a release mechanism, but I don't, for the most part, like carabiners on the outsides of my PFD. If they are, um, I'm not saying you can't do that. Um, and there are times I've, I've just, oh, I clip it there, but you gotta make sure they're locked. If they're not locked, you can accidentally clip into something and and that's a real hazard that is just you know easily avoided just control what we can control 
Um, there's a lot we can't control. Let's just control what we can. Scott Solly, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate your time. No problem. I appreciate you coming out and uh, hopefully getting some people interested, some more people. NRS creates gear that holds air in, keeps water out, and holds things together. Santos and Mike talk about how they work to ensure operational durability of their products. My name is Santos Vargas. I am a product coordinator at NRS. I am mainly focused on soft goods. I'm Mike Dolmage. I'm the NRS hard goods product manager. In terms of testing, it doesn't matter if it's new or we're modifying it. There are different levels of testing. That goes anywhere from testing and evaluating the durability and strength at a certification level, as well as internally, we have our own standards that are you know, organized based off of industry standards or our own standards that we hold our own products to. And so we do have a network that we're able to get our products out on the water and really try and work out the kinks during development. And that's done through athletes, through employees, through our network of other paddlers, through accounts, through sales. In addition to NRS.com, you can find NRS gear at many of your local and regional river gear shops. NRS encourages you to support your local river gear supplier. Earlier in this episode, we heard from Friends of the Yampa about their research river trips. In another episode of this cluster, Friends of the Yampa told us about their summer youth camps. There is an intersection between these river research trips and their summer youth camps. Lindsay Marlowe is the executive director of Friends of the Yampa. In 2022, we're trying something new. We are using our volunteer river trips through Dinosaur and we're connecting it to our youth summer camps by inviting students from the camps to these trips through Dinosaur. And for the first time this year, we have two previous campers come on one of our research trips. They're coming on the Dragonfly Larva Mercury Study Trip. We're really excited for this nexus and to grow our river stewardship in this basin through the youth. We are working to grow our membership base and I invite each one of you to donate to Friends of the Yampa, become a member, help us make an impact through these youth river camps to the kids in this valley and outside of it. Help support our research trips and volunteering through Dinosaur National Monument. Out of North Carolina, our next guest is Juliet Jacobson Kastorf. Juliet is the owner and founder of Endless River Adventures in North Carolina, Costa Rica, and Ecuador. She teaches kayak-based swift water rescue. Here is Juliet. I'm Juliet Jacobson-Kastorf, and I've been boating for over 30 years, and I own a company, Endless River Adventures, based in the Southeast. And we do whitewater rafting and mostly known for kayak construction, and then we also have been doing international trips for just as long, for 30 years, um, specifically in Costa Rica and in Ecuador. I moved to Western North Carolina because of kayaking. I had been up in Washington, D.C., and I found whitewater kayaking up on the Potomac. Then I discovered Western North Carolina and made a deliberate choice that I wanted to call it home. And it's been that way ever since. And so because I hands-on teach kayaking and I'm one of the guides internationally, so I spend over 200 days a year professionally working on the river, either as an instructor or as a guide. And that doesn't include my fun time. And fortunately for me, 
making working on the river my career didn't take away from my joy of being on the river. So the next question is, can you define what swift water rescue is? As you see it, what is what is swift water rescue? Swift water rescue is training to learn how to deal with um, scenarios on the river, how to use your ropes, use your team, um, how to how to take care of pinned boats and entrapments. You teach kayaking, you have these companies, you, you work in these various mountain locations with whitewater. Can you talk about your relationship with Swift Water Rescue? Of course. So Swift Water Rescue is something that every person that we at Endless teach to paddle, we say that they should take a Swift Water Rescue class. At Endless River Adventures, we don't do like the ACA or the solo Swift Water Rescue. What we do is a boat-based Swift Water Rescue class specifically for kayakers. And I am hands-on one of the people that teaches that class because I think it's really important. There's a big difference between swift water rescue, like the certified swift water rescue and boat-based swift water rescue, because what we teach in the boat-based is more, it's a lot more kayak specific, like hands-on, how to do a hand of God, how to get a kayak to shore, um, how to unpin a kayak. And I think that for a whitewater kayaker in particular, doing both is really important. What's a, what's a hand of God? A hand of God is where if there's somebody who can't roll their kayak up, you actually reach over and physically roll their kayak back up. And it, it's a really good skill to have. What it does is it keeps people in their boats. And so if somebody's struggling to try and right their boat back up and you can help them by by rolling it up or if they're unconscious. And that has happened more than once in my time in paddling where there was somebody unconscious underneath. And in one situation that I know of, they were hand dotted. And it definitely, you need to practice it. It's not something that somebody's just gonna go and watch YouTube and then be able to do. You do have to practice it. So when you're saying hand to God, one kayak's upside down, the other kayak that's upright pulls up parallel and just alongside them reaches across the upside down boat and kind of grabs the lip of the cockpit and pulls that forward, pulls that mm -hmm. towards them. Correct. Yeah, that's a move. That's a lot of strength and balance. And you're also... Push and pull. Oh, okay, okay. Push and pull. Gotcha. And you have to not punch their skirt out, I would think. You would hope not to. You know, sometimes you'll be doing that and they're like in the process of pulling their skirt and you're like, Oh no. And they'll be able to kind of submarine it to shore. Sometimes they end up out of their boat anyway. It doesn't always work. And there's definitely times where you choose not to do it. Um, because if you're right above a rapid and you're putting your paddle down, you're now setting yourself up that you could be part of the problem as well. So you choose to back them up once they've come out of the boat or gotten stuck or whatever. Because one of the things that you learn in any kind of training with swift water rescue, when you take classes is the number one thing you do not want to do is you do not want to also become a victim. Before, uh, before you explain the hand of God, you are detailing your swift water rescue course. Can you go back to telling us more about what you teach in that class? Our boat-based swift water rescue that we teach, we basically kind of cherry pick 
things out of a certified swift water rescue. For example, everybody should at least go through how to use a Z-drag and how to swim over a strainer, things like that. But our boat-based is definitely more you're in the moment. And how do you get a, a kayaker up who's unconscious? And that's applicable. It just happened a few days ago out on the white salmon where they had to give a hand of God and pull an unconscious boater out. How to get a boat to shore. A lot of people, kayakers get in a group and they don't know how to get a kayak to shore or they don't know how to hold an extra paddle or they don't know how to prioritize who should do what. And then you get people who, because they're not as experienced, they don't feel like they should participate in a scenario like that. And then you end up like losing boats or losing paddles. And the bottom line is a class two boater can actively participate in helping in a situation where you have like a swim and things like that. Giving them the training so they have the confidence to do it is what's going to help them feel more empowered to be able to participate. Obviously, considering swift water rescues, considering our better safety skills, what are questions you think are important for a person to run through their own mind to decide if they have the skills and even the immediate mindset to run a particular stretch of river or a particular rapid, um, even to go with a certain group of friends? What are the things that a person should be doing at at the self-check-in level to ensure that they are going to be safe for themselves and for their, 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 their boating peers? I think as far as running a river or in particular running a specific rapid, you should be able to visualize that you can successfully run that rapid. If you can't visualize yourself successfully running it, you probably shouldn't run that rapid. And then what builds on that confidence more than anything in whitewater, I think, are the people you're on the river with. Are you on the river with people who know the river, people who you trust? people that you know have the skill to be on the river? And do you have the skill to be on that river based on um, your experience, whether it's that river or it's a similar river? And then sometimes, like when you first start out in river running, in a way, unfortunately, you have to trust the people you're with because sometimes they suggest that you join them on the river. And your question is, am I good enough to be on it? And I always try and tell people when I'm training, if they say, don't worry, I know the river, I can get you down it. They're not going to be sitting in your lap paddling your boat. The question really, you have to turn that around and say, do I have the skill? Do I have the experience with other rivers to be able to paddle this river today? And then as time goes on, you start to learn who you can trust um, judgment wise and who you can't. One of the real important things that I always train people on is that if the person in front of you doesn't turn around and look back to make sure you're okay, you shouldn't be paddling with them. During my conversation and interview with Juliet, there were two points when I was surprised by Juliet's attention towards highlighting the risk of river running. After hearing this message a couple of times, I asked Juliet about that angle. Her answers are maybe the best reason to talk about river running and the value of being involved in swift water rescue. I I feel like I'd like to 
um, clear the air that I'm feeling right now. What I'm hearing you say is that there's an expression in this that that river running is dangerous. It's inherently dangerous. That it's so dangerous that you should anticipate having these accidents, and that that it's it's almost hard to prevent any of that from happening. So maybe maybe steer me differently if you feel like I'm misinterpreting that. Can you talk me through some of those things there? Sure. So as far as on the river, should you anticipate having a victim? No, not anticipate in that every day you get on the river, your fear is that somebody's going to be a victim. But is it a fact of life with kayaking and rafting? It is. And it doesn't just happen on class five rivers. And so people should always be in tune with their surroundings and with who they're with, because a class five situation can happen on a class two river and it does. And so in, in my opinion, you should never go on a river thinking that nothing could happen because it can, and it could very quickly get worse. And so you're always aware of your surroundings. You're aware of where the people you're boating with, where are they? And also other people who are on the river, because sometimes things happen to people that aren't part of your group and you get drawn into having to help. I I don't want to say, should you anticipate, but is it a fact of life with whitewater? It is. And um, it's unavoidable in that it can happen. In a situation, you might need to pull out those skills. And if you don't have the training with those skills, you aren't going to know what to do. And so the best thing is that it doesn't happen and that people watch out for each other, that they take care of each other, that they're careful about where they paddle. And um, But you also have to take into consideration that sometimes things just happen that are unexplainable and there's nothing you can do about it. So um, that's good. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm chuckling because I think description is, um, I would say it's not necessarily inviting. So then I want to ask the question about the intersection of, of, of enjoying river running. The, you know, in my opinion, it's just such a beautiful place to be moving water, riparian zones, all the critters and creatures that come in and out, the refreshing nature of it. Um, and we don't breathe when we go underwater, right? It's just this, this like this layer. It's just you breathe and you don't breathe. So, could you just talk about this this intersection around enjoying a river and being hyper aware and safe to protect yourself and your and your and your peers, your friends at the same time? Sure, but I'm to let you know, like in a way, this is a little bit of it's a it's a very tender subject right now. In the last month, we've had three drownings in kayaking. All three were inexplicable why they happened. Like if that day putting on the river, if anybody had said, wow, there's a chance somebody could drown today. Impossible, including with these people. They were all well within their skills. They were not paddling over their heads. And um, and it happened. So 
but it, it's a it's a little bit of a touchy subject right now. In the southeast, in my 30 years of paddling, I've had to I have had to call three mothers. I've had to walk people what to do when they're dealing with the shit. What do we do? It happens and it sucks. And it definitely is a sore subject right now. But with that said, so why do people kayak? You know, kayaking is not as much of a sport as it is a passion. Whether you're a kayaker or you paddle a shredder or a ducky or an raft, there is this incredibly personal connection that people have with being on the river. A lot of times when people are on the river, because of the focus that you need, it's almost like when you finish, you've just spent hours in the most beautiful meditation. Your mind is emptied. You've just been focused on the river, the rapids, nature, how beautiful it is. There is a passion about whitewater that you don't find in any other sport. And so why do people take the, quote, risks that they do? Number one, obviously, there is the adrenaline and the challenge. You know, you put yourself in a small boat dealing with the strongest force of nature and you learn how to work with it and run rapids successfully. It is an incredibly rewarding passion, hobby, sport, whatever you want to call it to do, um, because at the end of the day, you just feel absolutely fulfilled. And I think that's why people do it. That's why people accept that there is risk. And, you know, one of the things we always say is there's risk. It's probably more dangerous driving to the river or driving home than it is on the river. Because on the river, there's so much that you can control as far as do you run the rapid? Do you walk around that rapid because it's more challenging than you want that day? you have a lot of choices as far as your day on the river. Running rivers is one of my favorite ways to spend my precious time on this planet for reasons that I anticipate many of us share. And in the moments on the river when the boat gets sideways and rowdy and sketchy, because at some point it happens, I feel relieved to have arrived in that moment somewhat prepared to navigate the turbulence. By calling on Juliet Jacobson Castorf and Scott Solly, I want to hear from the folks who understand about the edge of the envelope between joy and fear, between the smooth and the terrifying of river running. To close out, here is Juliet one last time. In the big picture, the risk in our sport, if you have the right training, if you have good equipment, if you're with people you trust, the risk level is, is low. But that inherent risk means that sometimes something just happens. And we all know that. And if somebody gets into this sport and they haven't experienced it yet, they will at some point, even if it's not directly, like they'll know of somebody who, um, who ends up dying on a river. And it's part of what you accept. Like, do you just sit at home and never let anything happen? Yes, there's inherent risk, but in whitewater, you can, to a certain extent, control that risk. But you also know that sometimes you can't and you're willing to take that, um, 
because there's such enjoyment with being on the river. A throwback size thank you goes out to today's guest, Juliet Jacobson Kastorf and Scott Solly. You can find links to their respective classes and other information in the episode notes in your podcast player. Today's sponsors are NRS and Friends of the Yampa. You can find links to both organizations also in the episode notes. Additional thank yous go out to two people. Ellen Babers is a regional neighbor of mine and a recent colleague. Ellen grew up running rivers in the southeast and consistently sheds light for me on the strong river community of the southeast. And Ellen introduced me to the second thank you, which goes out to Mark Hunt of North Carolina. Mark has talked with me about the rivers and river experts of the southeast and recommended and introduced me to today's guest, Juliet Jacobson-Kastorf. Thank you both, Ellen and Mark. There are two more episodes in this cluster, one on getting kids on the river and another for food packing on the river. Both are available now in your podcast player and on our website. We will have a single episode soon and then our second cluster of the year covering salmon restoration in the Snake River Basin and the engaged push to remove the four lower dams on the Snake River will publish in the next few months. You can be in touch anytime on social media and email hello at theriverradius.com. On Instagram, we will be launching our second giveaway in the next few weeks. We will post details soon. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. You know, Western North Carolina is like the epicenter of whitewater. Cold, steep, fast, slow, big, narrow. Shioa River. Yeah, lots of different rivers. That's how you get good. Yakoe River. I've run some really tight chicken lines. Takasiji. That not all straps are, are created equal. Shituga. To flip over and have your frame come off. The Anahela River. And yeah, I've, I've lost some knives over the years. Quite a few, really. Obviously, a lot of other places say that too.